Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome back to episode nine of The Hero's Journey. In this episode, I sat down with Baldemar Velasquez, founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, who zoomed in from Toledo, Ohio. Although I will say in the coordination of this episode, uh, he was on the front lines in North Carolina, helping to organize farm workers there. Baldemar wears many hats. Uh, he's a vanguard, an activist, an organizer, a father, a former farm worker, and an ordained chaplain. In this episode, Baldemar shares how his experiences in the field informed his activism. He follows up on a theme that we've been discussing throughout this season on intergenerational support and what ultimately led to his ability to really create change for farm workers in his community. Uh, Baltimore is a deeply spiritual being and he helps to bring forward the theme of faith and a belief in something greater in sustaining activism and transforming intolerance into solidarity. Are you still in North Carolina? No, I just got back late last night. Ah, to Toledo. Yes. Describe to me the scene in North Carolina. Like what is, what's happening there and what's it like? Uh, frantic uh, work, uh, heat, and farmers trying to catch up the crops because there was a lot of drought in areas. And then uh, the heat came on, the rains came on, it revitalized a lot of the crops. Uh, the the uh, farms that our members work on is over uh, you know, close to 700 farms. And so throughout the whole state, so different areas of the of North Carolina got hit with drought and others, others, the crop was way behind this year. The tobacco harvest was a month behind. And so now it's coming on. So there's frantic to try to get the crop out of the field. And um, workers were um, uh, languishing in labor camps with no work. Uh, we, we ran out of uh, 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 money in a fund that we had to help workers through when they had, were without work for two weeks that we gave them the money out of that fund that depleted the entire fund. That's how bad it was. And so um, the workers are working a lot of hours right now to catch up. So and how many workers come into the United States per year for sort of seasonal farm work? Well, the, the visa program, you're talking about the ones that come legally with a visa the H-2A agriculture work visa, uh, that's way up over, um, we had, uh, oh gosh, I wanna say, I, I lost the figures there some time ago, but I know that uh, just a couple of years ago, we were up to, you know, 60, 70,000, and I think it's exploded since then. Okay. And the farmers are really relying on that program because the undocumented migrants 
that we had a lot of in the country, um, sort of uh, hidden further into the shadows because of all the immigration uh, controversy. And then they can't be reliable because uh, if they feel like they're being targeted by immigration, then they, they move around. So a farmer leaves us, uh, workers leave a, a farmer's uh, harvesting in the middle of it. Um, they can't rely on that type of worker. So they went to this H-2A gifts worker program. And then what it's exploded the recruitment are independent farm labor contractors who are not farmers. They're kind of like custom crews. They, uh, but the Department of Labor still considers themselves, consider them as employers, but they don't own the land. They don't plant the crop. They don't do anything. They just come in and harvest. So they get H-2A workers and they're known to uh, terribly exploit those workers. Uh, they pocket their, um, the fees that they had to pay the consulate uh, in Mexico uh, for the visa and the, and the interview. And um, these farm labor contractors pretty routinely uh, keep that pocket, that money. So, uh, and then they underpay them. They don't pay the, the uh, required rate under the uh, Department of Labor's uh, minimum uh, wage standards that um, are compiled, compiled uh, annually. And uh, the farm labor contractors, a lot of times don't pay by the hour, they pay piece rate mm -hmm. and uh, workers do not make it and they're violating the law, And but there's no way to nail them. Department of Labor has too few investigators and a lot of times when they do investigate it, they do it with a warning that, that they're coming out, uh, which gives the farm labor contractor all kinds of ways to hide what he's doing. So there's, there's a lot of uh, 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 problems with that program. Right. And so if you could make an estimate, both legal and sort of undocumented pathways, how many laborers are entering the U.S. for food production annually? Well, uh, according to uh, academic uh, studies that have been done, a lot, there's 1.5 million uh, farm workers in the, in the country. And uh, the majority of them are still undocumented. Uh, but the H-2A visa program is exploding. Uh, mm -hmm. Even the Biden administration is thinking of expanding it to Central America to alleviate the poverty there to, that causes the migration uh, north to try to stem the tide of migration into the United States. And they're uh, trying to think of a way to bring agricultural workers in from, say, Guatemala and the Central American countries. And... Um, uh, and of course, the, the recruitment in Mexico has uh, exploded in the last uh, three years as well. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's, that's kind of like the reality that we find. And that, that there doesn't seem to be, from my point of view, there doesn't seem to be a, 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 um, a fixed uh, situation uh, in Congress uh, or with the administration. Um, but I think they're trying to do some pilot programs to see what could work. And so let's kind of roll back a little bit. I mean, why don't you tell me a little bit about your organization and what work you're doing with farm laborers in the U.S. right now? Uh, of course, you know, we can get into the weeds about the detail issues that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think the important thing to understand, uh, people listening, is that there's no framework uh, in this country for agricultural workers to form a union. Uh, to find a collective voice. Uh, everybody and their mother is speaking for them. 
when it comes to legislation, when it comes to all kinds of public policy issues. And uh, uh, it's very difficult for the workers to have an independent voice. So uh, our initiative has been to create independent frameworks that have legal uh, standing. Uh, we pioneered uh, that uh, model uh, back in the 80s with the Campbell Soup Company when we uh, negotiated a supply chain agreement uh, because uh, the manufacturers and retailers who buy the crops are not the employers. The employers are the farmers who plant, grow the crop. And now the, they're distancing themselves from liability by bringing in independent farm labor contractors. So um, it's very difficult for farm workers to organize. Uh, we're not covered by the National Labor Relations Act, been excluded since 1935. Uh, and it was um, a legacy of racism um, because the, originally when they were excluded, uh, most of the agricultural workers were black and the Southern uh, Dixiecrats who needed, uh, who um, uh, President Roosevelt needed their support to pass that labor legislation, their condition was exclude agricultural workers because they couldn't see that black people have the same rights as white people. And we've lived with that racist legacy ever since. So uh, there being no framework, I mean, the auto workers, the truck drivers, and you know, restaurant workers, they'll have a mechanism legally uh, to, to uh, form unions. Agricultural workers do not. So we have to create independent frameworks to make that happen. And I think that that's the, the, um, the vanguard of our movement in terms of what we're trying to do, expand the independent frameworks. We did that with Campbell Soup, and we duplicated it with Heinz USA, the Vlasic Pickle Company, uh, Dean Foods and their subsidiaries, Aunt Jane and Green Bay Foods, and then uh, in the 2004 with the Monala Pickle Company in North Carolina. We did, we did that in order for the manufacturers to um, uh, feed more money into the supply chain to make the farmers sustainable and increase the wages and conditions of the farm workers. And um, until we get a framework that allows us to do that, we're going to continue to spin our wheels and do uh, patchwork and um, uh, really cosmetic uh, reforms uh, to try to make life better for agricultural workers. So let me get this straight. You're saying that right now in the U.S., farm workers are not an automatically protected labor class. Correct. So what your organization has had to do is negotiate labor contracts with large scale agricultural purchasers Correct. like Campbell Soup yes. um, in order to ensure that the labor conditions of folks working in their supply chain are fair or fairer. Yes, that's, that's correct. And so tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, how did you get involved in farm worker advocacy and, and what's your journey to your current organization? Um, well, basically, when I was a, a, a teenager, a young teenager, um, you know, you passed through all the, all the mistreatment that um, you lived the mistreatment working in the fields. Um, we were seasonal farm workers. I grew up um, originally from Texas, migrated from Texas to Ohio to harvest crops, and we got stranded in Ohio. So we became seasonal farm workers, worked the fields every summer uh, during the non-school hours and sometimes in the spring after school to do the early hoeing of sugar beets and blocking and weeding. Uh, and then during the whole summer, back-to-back uh, -back crops, we'd uh, migrate up to 
we do the sugar beet hoeing, then we migrate up to Michigan and pick cherries and come back and do the second hoeing sugar bees, and go right into the cucumber, tomato harvest, uh, into the potato harvest, into the fall, right into the school year. And um, did that every year growing up, even through college, undergraduate school, I was uh, helping my family in the fields uh, during the summer. But you, you experience all the mistreatment and, and uh, wage theft and all of that. And uh, But probably the thing that impacted me the most was the uh, the verbal mistreatment of my mom and family. Um, so when you say insulting and uh, very nasty things to, to your mom, a young man uh, is angry and wants to hit somebody. <laughs> so I grew up being an angry young kid and um uh i channeled my frustration and anger through sports at school so that saved me a little bit but i, I decided young uh, age that if when i grew up if i could do something about this i would and so when i started organizing it didn't mean to form a union i didn't know anything about unions back in uh you know um 1967 when i started um uh, actually, I thought of creating kind of like a civil rights movement because I had been involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, I worked for the Congress of Racial Equality up in Cleveland, uh, a long Christmas vacation during the summer uh, in, the, in the winter uh, uh, in 1966. And so I learned the lesson from the civil rights movement. I thought we, if I just organized the, uh, a group of farm workers, that we do it like a civil rights movement and that point out the violations of the law, the minimum wage violations, uh, the unlicensed labor camps squalor that we lived in. And I thought all we had to do was report it to the authorities and they'd fix it wrong. I mean, reported it and nothing happened, nothing changed. I said, I'm scratching my head and wait a minute. I thought we were a, we were a land of laws and uh, I'm pointing this violation out and that violation. I even got scolded by a, an agent from the Department of Labor. He said, look, look, buddy, I said, look, we, we don't have enough agents to, uh, to go out and investigate every nook and cranny of every rural county. That's just not gonna happen. And at that point I said, there's gotta be something different. So then I started to learn about unions and uh, I looked at everywhere I could to find anybody uh, organizing a farm worker union. And I found this guy named Jesse Salas up in Watoma, Wisconsin. So after my stint picking cherries in, um, up in the Traverse City area, uh, Michigan area, uh, on the way home after the cherry harvest, I uh, hitchhiked down to Ludington, uh, Michigan, where ferries go to the other side of uh, uh, the lake. And I stowed away on, um, on a ferry to get to, uh, uh, I didn't want to hitchhike all the way around the, down the lake through Chicago and up to Watoma, Wisconsin, where this this guy named Jesse Salas was uh, with a group called Obreros Unidos, who was organizing farm workers. And I spent a week there with him going to the camps, talking to workers. And so I said, this is what I got a mirror when I get back to Ohio. So the fall of 67, when I got back, they started organizing farm workers. And that was the start of my career. I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about organizing because as a strategy i feel like social movements are losing that we kind of want to click and post and tweet but we don't really understand the work of genuine organizing like what was it like for you to go back 
two farms where you yourself had worked, were working, and, and start to build awareness of injustice and rights and responsibilities? Uh, <laughs> Uh, first of all, you have to go in person. You have to be with people face to face. And uh, in this day of uh, modern technology, uh, all this uh, tweeting is it, it's good for passing information, but to really engage people and get them committed to doing something uh, instead of sitting there in front of a screen, uh, that's a challenge. And people have to sacrifice. Uh, nobody wants to sacrifice. Everybody wants everything easy. Mm. And um, I think that's the one thing that I pulled out of people by being personally in their face and say, well, you do this, but never ask them to do something that you're not doing first. Uh, you always say, join me. I'm going to do this. Can you come with me mm. and uh, do it one by one till you build a, a cadre of, of people that are firmly committed and you help them do the same thing and, and expand the network of people that you're got committed. And so those are the people that come to your marches. Those are the people that give up a half day of work to come do something that um, uh, they, a lot of sacrifice involved. So you're looking for the people that thinking of others first instead of yourself. Uh, at some point, you have to have either a, um, um, a personal reason why you want to do this. Uh, everybody, all organizers say, well, you got to organize around self-interest. Yeah, that's true. But at some point, they got to cross that threshold that you're doing something not only for yourself, but for others. So you're looking for the people who create an ideological reason why to be involved. And But the best ones really are the ones that have a spiritual commit, uh, commitment mm -hmm. to others other than themselves. Those are really strong and fervent because they have a, a God that's bigger that they rely on. And uh, there's few of those. Uh, but when you get them, you got a good organizer. And then you start to spread the word that way. It makes me think about the loss of the role of the church in sort of progressive social movements right now, because we don't, we, we rely on logic and a sense of injustice, but those are in some ways like impermanent feelings. But when you're driven by this responsibility to something greater than yourself, you see people willing to step outside of their comfort zones what were some of those early stories for you of organizing? I mean, <laughs> there, there early was, uh, I was just recounting on my Facebook page uh, a week ago or so that uh, when I started organizing, I mean, I was a 20 year old college kid. Right. And uh, I, I was amusing to the older men, my dad and his beer drinking buddies. Uh, I, I, in the Mexican, our Mexican culture, at least in Northwest Ohio, uh, the paternal order of things, uh, the men didn't listen to the young people. And uh, we're like a bunch of snotty kids, you know, that, that they looked at us that way. So when I started organizing, I realized I couldn't get their attention. So I said, I got to organize my dad and get him to help me. So I finally, he begrudgingly accepted uh to, to invite some of his friends over where they normally got together on weekends and sat around and drank beer and uh, talked and whatever. And so he got them together and I went and talked to them and they listened, listened to me out of respect for my dad. Right. Uh, but um, uh, they listened to my, my pitch and uh, 
they thought I was crazy. <laughs> and they listened, listened politely. And then, then when it was over and it said, okay, thank you. And they went back to drinking beer. And, um, um, finally what happened is that, uh, I convinced them to come and witness, uh, because they had a lot of no trespassing, no trespassing signs in these labor camps. And the biggest labor camp was the Libby McNeil Libby tomato plant uh, camp right next to the factory in Lipsick, Ohio. And uh, they had a barracks there. They had uh, 150 workers in there. And I was publishing a little tabloid uh, with farm worker rights and, and what we needed to do and announcing that we were forming an organizing committee. So I wanted to distribute it in that camp. So I talked uh, some of the uh, two or three of the men and there's some college students that were uh, classmates of mine that came and, 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 and there was a group of maybe a dozen observers into the labor camp. When I went in there, well, there was a police officer that guarded the camp. Uh, and so uh, he met me at the gate and uh, he said, you can't, uh, you can't go in. And he said, what do you want? I said, I'm going to distribute my, I'm forming an organizing committee um, uh, for farm workers, the former union. He said, you can't come in there with that stuff. Uh, I said, well, this is not a prison. Uh, and these men are here working. They have a right to receive visitors uh, like anyone uh, uh, renting. He said, well, they don't pay rent here. The housing is free from the company. I said, yeah, but see, it's part of their package. So it's essentially it's part of their pay. So you got to treat them like renters, not uh, prisoners. And uh, I saw that uh, men were coming out of assembling. Uh, there to see what this debate was going on with this cop and this young Mexican. And uh, they thought it was, what's going on here? Is there going to be uh, some violence or arrest or something? So a, a crowd of workers started coming in. And so the more I saw that, the more I instigated the discussion with the cop and with his, these observers behind. And I said, well, I'm going to go in there now and you can't stop me. He said, oh, you can't sit in there. I'm going to arrest you. I said, no, you can't arrest me. And I kept you know, arguing like that and voices raised. And I, I saw that the people, I learned that at that point, you have to be kind of an actor to do it, be an organizer. And you have to show you're not afraid of the cop. Even though I was a little bit tentative about it, I had to show, I had to pretend that I wasn't afraid. And so I just kept instigating and said, you can't go in there. You, you have, you, I'm going to arrest you on the spot. The moment you step in there, I said, okay, when I had the good enough crowd, I stepped in, of course, he arrested me and uh, put me in the back of his car and the window was down this fire. And I said, I'll be back. <laughs> so they took me over to jail and I got released on my own recognizance. I came back. Words, when that word spread to my dad's beer drinking friends, they said, well, you know, uh, we don't have anything. So we don't have anything to lose. Why not see what this kid's gonna do? And they thought I was amusing because I was the only Mexican kid in the county that was going to college. So they thought maybe he knows something we don't know. So, <laughs> so all that played in my favor. So those were the things that sort of brought the first uh, core of people together. But the main in, in, impetus to really move that was my mom. Uh, she was sort of observing from the side because the women didn't, you know, go to where the men were drinking beer. They were in the kitchen talking like comadres and everything uh, and sometimes preparing food. And um, when my mom... Uh, uh, started asking the men, oh, I mean, the women were talking among themselves about what I was doing, especially after I got arrested. And they said, he's, he's trying to uh, change those terrible conditions, the camps that we all grew up with and, uh, and uh, get the, uh, the people from being cheated and things like that. Why aren't, why aren't the, uh, 
the women started asking the men, why are we helping this kid? And so when the women start coming to the meetings, the men had to come. And so that was the thing that sort of generated the first part of our organizing. That Those are two amazing stories. First of all, I can feel my own indignation as a college student coming home and being laughed at by my dad and over time him <laughs> starting to kind of slowly listen. What do, do you see a youth presence right now in your movement? Uh, well, um, yes and no. Uh, the youth that were involved uh, in the past wave of uh, migrants that harvested crops were families uh, from Texas, Florida, that would come seasonally when the crops are on the downside in, in the south, they come north for the summer crops. Uh, normally they came as families. So there was a lot of young people involved in the agriculture. Now as the industry is turning to these guest worker programs, this H2A uh, visa uh, programs, they're, most, they're like 99%, 96% uh, men. Mm. And they want young men. And uh, that, that's the type of people that are being recruited that's slowly creeping, changing the, uh, uh, changing the whole uh, face of uh, the workforce uh, in agriculture. And I think that trends are gonna continue um, un until we, we find a way to create uh, legal frameworks for organizing agriculture workers, which is unlikely to happen. We can't get immigration reform on the table in Congress, let alone uh, uh, labor rights for agriculture workers, for union organizing. So um, I think uh, the, uh, the youth thing is gonna be, if they can get, you know, 18, 20 year olds um, uh, in that age level coming in as these guest workers. So to go back to your organizing in your original sort of home place, were you able to achieve what you were looking for? Like, did you change the conditions of the folks that were migrating there or living there long-term? Uh, yes, um, first of all, um, when we did the first uh, strike, uh, we chose the uh, suppliers as farmers that uh, mm -hmm. sold their tomatoes to Campbell Soup. 2,000 of us went on strike. And um, that strike lasted eight years. Uh, from the workers that went on strike, we recruited 100 of them or so to come back every year to set up our picket lines and organize the replacements that they would bring in and organize, get them to be part of it. We did that for eight years. And then we did a seven-year boycott of the Campbell Soup uh, Company. And uh, uh, when we did the boycott, we had supporters come in from all over. They just came out of the woodwork. Uh, when we negotiated that agreement, we, my mom was part of a women's committee. And um, there were certain items. I mean, wages were always uh, at the top of the list. In that first contract with Campbell's, uh, we got a wage increase of 80% in the first contract because we got the company to increase the uh, amount of money they paid the farmers. At that time, they were paying the farmers $34 a ton. We, in that first contract, we upped that to over $40 a ton so that the farmers could have the money to increase the wages of the workers. Uh, and then uh, uh, when we negotiated the first contract, 
the women's committee said, you have to do something about the housing because the housing we had at the time were one room shanties uh, with just a bare light bulb in it and, uh, in a, and a kerosene stove for cooking. And if you're lucky, you had a refrigerator, an old refrigerator. Uh, and so um, that had to change. And, uh, and the bathrooms were uh, either have to do a makeshift uh, place on the side of your cabin so you can heat a, a pail of, of water to wash yourself. Um, interesting, I learned to take a bath. I mean, soap yourself up, wash your hair with one bucket of lukewarm water. <laughs> and so you, you had to do the, 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 with a little cup very carefully to preserve that water, to use the least amount of water, to take a full bath, wash your hair uh, with one bucket of water. And uh, the later improvements were common use facilities. They put a, a, a block building with uh, men and women on, on two sides uh, with a couple shower heads for the women and a couple for the men. Now, that's a crew of maybe 20, 30 workers. So when you got out of work, you'd be waiting in line forever to take your shower. And then there was a lot of uh, sexual harassment around mm -hmm. that. And the women did not like that, especially for their daughters. And so my mom said, you have to do something about the housing. So we created a housing committee in the uh, multi-party agreement because the company, their growers, and the, and the union signed one agreement. It was a supply chain agreement, first of its kind in history, as we put Flock on the map back in 1986 uh, um, uh, when we signed that agreement. Um, and um, uh, the, the house, we had a standing committee for housing. What we did was remarkable because uh, one of the things that kept everything together to keep the framework legally together uh, is the, uh, the fact that we created an independent commission that mirrored the National Labor Relations Board. And they were, they were signatures to the agreement, uh, which made it bindingly legal, the contract. And they had the authority to issue fines, penalties, and make whole remedies if you violated the terms of the collective bargaining agreement. To me, that was the biggest victory to create that commission with that kind of authority that the, that the company and the growers signed on to which made it a legal binding document. That was the independent framework. But in that committee, the study committee, uh, the commission uh, would bring together the companies, the growers uh, who were in an association and the union and created a public-private partnership with the state of Ohio, uh, their department of development. So we, we cleverly, uh, with the help of John Dunlop, was the first chair of the commission. He was the former secretary of labor. Uh, under the uh, Ford administration. That man was remarkable. I learned a lot of my strategy from him. He's, uh, he was a professor at Harvard, uh, and uh, um, uh, he would uh, help us create these meetings with the State Department of Development. We argued successfully with the state that if um, the state that had the housing is going to get the workers, and the state that has the workers is going to get the contracts from the, from the companies to grow their crops in the state, so it was a job preservation. It was a um, uh, labor retention operation that fit under the categories of the Department of Development of the state of Ohio. So we got the governor to sign a, uh, to put a half million dollars in his biennium budget, which he gave away uh, $25,000 grants to any grower who would build a new labor camp. And uh, that 
25,000 at that time was about a third of the cost of a new labor camp. In order for the farmers to get the uh, paid back uh, a labor camp that would cost say, say $85,000, um, that would be like duplexes, where self-contained showers, kitchens, bedrooms for privacy. Uh, we had somebody draft a, a, uh, a model uh, a floor plan for that, uh, an architect, and uh, at minimum cost for summer housing. And um, uh, $85,000 uh, to pay the any loans off the investment for a farmer, the companies agreed to contract those farmers for 10 years. In other words, you had a 10-year agreement uh, that a buyer for your crop, of a perishable crop, uh, that was formally uh, done on a year-to-year -year basis. So that commitment long-term allowed the farmers to get into the game, take that uh, grant, which cut a third of the cost off, and you had to wait 10 years to repay any loans or interest and so on. So we renovated in uh, three years, we renovated like 85% of all the housing stock in Northwest Ohio. And actually some of that housing is still being used now, even though the farmers went out of business. Um, for, for instance, there's one of those units in uh, south of Bowling Green, Ohio, that is now used as student housing for university students. That's how good the housing was. So let me get this straight. Part of your kind of innovation as an organizer, was to understand if farm workers aren't a protected labor category, we need to create these agreements that bridge maybe state actors in terms of grant providers with far us, a farm worker labor advocacy organization with the sort of big F farmers who would be employing those farm workers. And you would create these sort of legally binding agreements which had the effect of raising the conditions, both the living conditions for farm workers, but also the wages that they're paid. You got that right. You can come work for me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, a lot of what's coming up for me is that this work was happening back in the 80s and 90s. What's happening now? I mean, what is your organization? How is how have you shifted your focus? Have you broadened the strategy geographically? Yeah, we we're trying to expand that model, duplicate that model, but uh, we're we're the, the the tension and the problem is that we have to administrate the agreements that we have on top of uh, uh, doing the the massive amount of work that's got to be done to bring new players into the game. Right now, our target are the big tobacco companies because that's the main crop that runs through the deep south, and that's not a particularly uh, 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 colorful uh, product uh, to deal with. Uh, but the, the the farms that grow tobacco are very diversified. Uh, they grow multiple crops that are hand harvested: uh, uh, cucumbers and sweet potatoes, uh, uh, wine grapes, and uh, I think there's a list of 34 different crops that these farmers uh, grow in in, uh, in North Carolina. So expanding this uh, model, this structure outside of North Carolina is a challenge, but we can't do it unless we have the companies that buy the product engaged uh, to make it uh, uh, real. So we've been uh, battling with the Reynolds Tobacco Company for like uh, 12 years now. And uh, we're talking, we do have some talks going on uh, and um, they're confidential, so I, I can't really speak of, of the, the contents of the 
discussions, but we're making some progress in discussing uh, framework uh, ideas to bring more people under the agreements uh, that would be legal and binding. And we hope to duplicate what we've done with these other manufacturers in the past. Uh, so that's the challenge. And, and a lot of times you have to bring uh, partners into the framework that uh, would have been unlikely in the past and that may be uh, were questionable by other people. I never write anybody off. Anyone who's got an idea. Uh, and uh, I think where we have um, uh, problems is um, um, when you got uh, parties that could be solutions uh, to a, a new uh, combined framework uh the step into an area that they have not uh, done before and uh, but you have to give everyone a, a good reason how it's good policy and it's, it's in a good investment of their time and even their resources to participate in something that's going to create some real change and not just spin your wheels and do cosmetic things as you go along so as the food system is consolidated over the past 20 years and you've seen sort of fewer and fewer companies owning uh greater and greater segments of the entire supply chain has that made your work easier because you're negotiating now with one company that might have a national supply chain or has it made it harder because the parties are more and more distant from the actual folks on the ground? I, I think you hit on a, in an area that's, uh, that misses most people, uh, particularly the, the, uh, these nonprofit advocates in Washington and other places, they, they miss the big picture. Uh, American agriculture, uh, particularly our food system, uh, I think is uh, under duress and we're very likely it, it should be a national security issue um, because the the trend is that these manufacturers and retailers uh, their supply chains are global now, and so we we uh, domestic uh, operations cannot compete with um, uh, the suppliers that they are contracting out of the country. Uh, these big manufacturers. Um, I mean, in tobacco, you got Reynolds Tobacco, you got uh, Philip Morris International, uh, you got Philip Morris USA. They're separate companies. Uh, you've got a couple other uh, buyers of tobacco. You got a broker involved that buys uh, all of the tobacco for Philip Morris International, Alliance One, and Universal Leaf, and but they buy globally um, because they blend the tobacco, the quality tobacco from the U.S. with tobacco from other countries. But they're beginning to duplicate that quality in other places like Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique, and uh, Malawi. Uh, they're creating a tobacco that that's pretty much equal to the quality. And over there, we visited uh, uh, one of the farms, uh, plantations in Malawi, and visited the flu-cured tobacco operation for uh, uh, Alliance One, based in Greensboro, North Carolina. I asked, I asked the guy, what do, you, what do you get paid? What's your minimum wage here that they pay you? He said, oh, we don't get paid by the hour, we get paid by the day. And they were getting, and when you did the conversion to American dollars from their, uh, their monetary system there, they were getting paid 85 cents a day. And I said, how can we, I tell the workers over here under our H2A agreement, this year they're getting paid uh, 14, 16 an hour. I said, we're not gonna compete with that for very long. 
So we're going to, we're going to start losing jobs to the imports. Uh, the only thing that keeps us here, number one is still the quality and the fact that the, the time of the year they get tobacco to keep tobacco coming in year round. Same thing with cucumbers, same thing with other crops. Uh, but the biggest immediate threat right now to the farmers, uh, these small family farmers that are suppliers to corporations are the corporate farmers on the West Coast. Uh, a company like Driscoll's that hires thousands of people and they grow uh, strawberries up and down the West Coast all the way into Mexico from in Baja, California. And so, and then with their trade agreements, uh, there's no restrictions on importing the strawberries from Mexico. So the losers are the small family farmers in the Midwest and in the Deep South that supply uh, strawberries to, the, you know, the Costco's and the uh, um, uh, Walmarts. Um, so the, the more we depend on it, uh, and the trade balance with Mexico in the agriculture has reversed in the last 10 years. Now we import more from Mexico than we export to them agriculture products. So when we start depending on foreign imports of our food supply, anyone, any country that we get in a you know tussle with, uh, could very easily become a security issue. Yeah, I mean you're watching it. You're watching the false promise of globalization bear out right now with Russia. I mean, I remember being told the mantra like the more we're interconnected economically, the more we'll be incentivized for peace. And I'm like. No, the more we're integrated economically, the harsher the weapons are for everyday people um, because we have a dependence that for many, when it comes to food, is life and death. That's what's wrong with our uh, foreign policy in, uh, in our trade agreements, that there's no, there's no uh, not safety nets, but there's, there's nothing to respond to the... Um, to the problems that they create. Mm -hmm. um, like that, when we did the NAFTA agreement in the first three years, we displaced uh, 3 million corn farmers in Mexico and their families, you know, where are they gonna, if they can't support themselves growing corn in Mexico, what are they gonna do? They gotta migrate. And then now we complain that they're coming, pressing our border. Well, we shouldn't have displaced them in the first place. Uh, and what we don't have, we don't duplicate uh, like a comparable wage, for instance. Um, I argued, you know, 15 years ago when I did a commencement speech, a speech at Bowling Green State University that uh, why can't we have a, hem uh, a hemispheric minimum wage for countries that form these uh, trade agreements? Why can't we have a, a, uh, a uh, freedom travel visa uh, that workers who get displaced uh, are able to well, treat labor like they do other commodities. You want uh, food and products to flow freely between countries, why not people? Give them a legal uh, a visa in order to do that and let the labor supply saturate itself the way you do the, the market on other products. Because uh, workers are not gonna migrate to an area where there's no work. They're gonna, when they hear that there's workers, they're gonna go there, they're gonna make a beeline there and, um, uh, uh, the the migration will take care of itself. You, you let the labor market saturate itself. I got to have a legal way for them to move around to make that happen. And then in our trade agreements and our foreign policy, it can't be just for investors' interests because that's what our foreign that that's what our trade agreements are are really designed to do to protect investors. And that's what all the wars in Central America have been about protecting American investors. When we when we uh, go to overthrow 
Salvador Allende in Chile uh, using our CIA and everything. I mean, it's been documented. Uh, we did that to protect our investors. And uh, we can't operate in the world that way because we're going to create enemies and we're going to jeopardize our own people because we're going to lose our agricultural industry, these small family farmers, and we need to preserve them in order for us to keep our jobs. Mm. I'm wondering how it's felt for you as a Latino organizer in the United States, just with the, because I feel like the anti-immigration sentiment is a part of the same protecting our investments by keeping folks undocumented outside of the formal economy or sort of in um, inhumane working conditions because of their legal working status. And so I'm wondering how you've had to deal with that in your career and what you and, and sort of what you think of this moment in time. Um, I'm not sure if um, that debate is intentional. Uh, I think I think it has to do with lack of information and ignorance on the part of a lot of American people. You know, they very superficially think, well, the law is this, and they're breaking the law. So what what part of the legal do you not understand? And uh, and but when they don't go deep into the uh, the reasons and the causes and the whys and so on. Um, uh, so I, uh, even the, the most hardened uh, opponent, um, I never write off because maybe they're lacking information and there's got to be a way to earn an honest discussion with those people. And the ones that I found, uh, when we did the Mount boycott, signed that uh, big agreement with us in North Carolina in 2004, uh, the people I recruited to convince to join were unlikely participants. They were right-wing evangelical Christians, kids, high school students. And um, uh, when they took uh, straw polls uh, about presidential candidates, the Republicans always win with about 85, 90% of the student poll. And um, very, very conservative. Um, I knew a lot of those kids. I sent my kids to this Christian school. Um, uh, I felt that the, those kids who come from those uh, uh, suburbs of Toledo needed to have kids that are different from them and come from a different experience. And my kids had pretty interesting uh, encounters with the kids because they played sports together and they had developed friendships. And uh, uh, since I'm a, an ordained chaplain, they invited me to uh, do a presentation, uh, a chapel service. And, you know, I had about 400 kids in that auditorium, the whole high school and junior high. And I said, let's, uh, today the issue is going to be the most caustic word you hear in the immigration uh, movement. And that's um, uh, uh, alien, the word alien. Um, and so um, uh, let's see what the scripture says about the alien. And I read it from the scripture. And I said, uh, if you look in your concordance, it's a reference book, uh, take a word and every scripture that has that word in it comes out. There's 119 references to the word alien in the scripture. And uh, if you read them all, there's three themes. One, uh, do not mistreat or oppress the alien. Uh, that comes from Exodus. And then the book of Numbers is my uh, amnesty 
verse, uh, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 15, no, chapter 14, verse, chapter 15, 15 says that you shall govern the alien with the same laws as you govern yourself. And then the third are the prophets. And I use the, uh, 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 one of the citations that is used in these uh, men's rallies they were having at that time uh, from uh, the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 32, verse 30, it says, uh, um, when I'm looking for a man to stand in the gap on behalf of the earth, so I wouldn't have to destroy it. Verse 29, right before that sums up the whole chapter, had to do with cheating, had to do with robbing, stealing uh, your neighbor's home. It had to do with economic exploitation and mistreating the alien uh, that God was so mad that he's going to wipe us out if we kept doing these things. So when I read that to those kids, I said, because I, mean, I, I wrapped it around a story of a, of a H-2A worker that was left to rot in the fields of North Carolina. His mm -hmm. bones were discovered, laid in a morgue uh, until a, a Catholic seminarian with some workers went and identified his remains by the clothes in the the Waraches that he they they're recognized from their hometown, and uh, and I told the kids if you want to do something about this, I want to do three things. We're gonna raise some money for the, that family, the widow, because God watches over jealously the orphans, the widows, and the aliens. Now, how many of you are willing to fast for one meal and the money that you would spend on that meal give to the uh, to this family? The whole student, everybody raised their hands. We raised a thousand dollars in one lunch hour period. And then we got that matched by two other people. So I said, the second thing I'm going to ask you is to go with me, volunteer, raise money, airfare, hotel, uh, ground transportation, and uh, go with me to deliver this money to this widow. So I had eight students uh, uh, agreed and went with me and visited that widow in the mountains of San Luis Potosí. They could not believe the squalor of that little village. A woman living in a thatched room hut with a dirt floor and... Um, uh, they were they were shook up by it. Uh, when they came back, they they were my best organizers. Uh, and when we pulled marches here on on Broadway uh, in front of our office, you know we had two three hundred kids uh, come out. Uh, they were our shock troops for the Manolo boycott that we finally won. And um, so there was a big debate in the school. Some of the parents did not like it, but the kids argued said that's what God's word says. Aren't we Christians? And so. Um, um, uh, we won them over, and to this day, some of those kids still write. Um, uh, I was at the airport in Detroit, and uh, this this uh, attractive uh, young uh, flight attendant uh, with, with a flight attendant's uh, suit on, and I said, "Mr. Velasquez, Mr. Velasquez, across the you know," and, then, and I turned around and I said, "Do you remember me? I'm so and so. I was part of the marches for the Mount Olive boycott. I just got to tell you that those, that was a, one of the most significant things that I experienced in my young life. Mm -hmm. There you go. I'm having these parallel images of those kids going home and talking to their parents <laughs> is the same dynamic of you talking to your dad and how much that kind of intergenerational knowledge sharing is also being lost, I think, because of technology and the way that we do and do not communicate and connect with our elders and um, the simplification of the conversation a lot of times. And 
the fear I think people have about going home and talking to their parents or their grandparents about divisive issues and what's changing. I mean, what young people are inspiring you right now? Who's sitting down and trying to convince dad or grandpa that he needs to come along on a hard issue? Well, um, I see young people um, striking out on their own. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm not downplaying. You know the um, uh, any efforts that, that young uh, people have, because uh, I remember being uh, young, trying to uh, push out new ideas and trying to get people's ear. Um, I've always tried to say, look. Um, uh, let's take everybody's opinion, word, and process it. Don't write it off. And uh, and but once you do, and they they still don't agree uh, with your judgment, you got to let them go. You got to go do what you got to do, and uh, we'll see. But you try to tell them if you do this, this is probably what's going to happen, or what might happen. If you do that, it's going to this might happen. Uh, so like any other young person, sometimes you, you blow off what the older people tell you. Uh, and sometimes you, um, you learn um, you know, by your own mistakes. And all you can do at that point is, uh, all right, so you weren't quite right about that. Let's pick up the pieces and let's try it again and find something that works. But because that's the only thing that's built our movement, this independent movement, We're the only farm worker union outside of the states that have a law. California has a labor law that covers agriculture workers. They have a framework to, to uh, form a union. Now New York just passed one uh, a year ago uh, and they have a framework, but nowhere else in the country is there any kind of legal framework to do this. So you have to do it by trial and error. You get young persons comes in and uh, you, they'll make mistakes, and but you can't uh, you know, uh, dismiss them uh, you have to build from uh, the mistakes that you make, identify it. Let's go back and do something else. Don't do that anymore. Let's do this and, and try to build from that. Now, the young people that we get in the movement that grasp that will do fine. Uh, they're, they're, but there are also some uh, hardheads that they just want to continue to repeat the problem over and over again. So we have to let them go and let them do their own thing. So. Uh, we we have to sort of engage and create the what I call necessary tensions, uh, but try to give people as much opportunity as you can to repeat and repeat and repeat and learn and learn and learn because that's the way we built this movement. We've we've gotten people trained to do things that they wouldn't even think of doing, uh, particularly on the administrative side. We're not administrators here, um, you know we. Uh, the government says, oh, you got to do this. report. Oh, shoot, I didn't know we had to do that. Or how do we do it? You know, so you do the first reports, you make mistakes, and then uh, they tell you, no, that's wrong. How do you do it right? So you got to bring people up. We're, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have the money to hire top professionals uh, in every field um, because we're still developmental and we're still trying to expand the representation, which is the most important part. So the future of the battle right now, if I understand correctly, is like best case scenario is a federal labor standard for farm workers. Yeah. 
Next best is working at the state level to create a protected worker status for farm workers, which we have in New York and California. And then from there, it's identifying individual companies that might agree to these frameworks um, that would protect the value of farm workers. Yeah. Unfortunately, the third option is probably the only um, um, possible credible uh, place to invest your time and energy. Mm -hmm. um, because you do the latter, uh, the previous two, you're going to spend a lot of time doing electoral politics. And uh, I don't see that as a game for farm workers because of the limited resources and personnel that we have involved. So we have to we have to look and push for those independent frameworks. Mm. We're almost out of time. I wanted to kind of open it up if there's any sort of last sort of words of wisdom for folks who are interested in labor organizing or the worker on farm workers. Uh, yes, um, the last thing in uh, the this idea of the supply chain, um, because even the laws in California and New York do not address that problem. Uh, and what you're going to run into, and it's not so much a problem in California because most of the, a lot of the growers are corporate growers, huge. Uh, uh, but in other parts of the U.S. where you have farms that are labor intensive, that are suppliers to major corporations, they don't control their market. They don't control their, their prices. Uh, so when you negotiate with them, you negotiate with a ceiling, a financial ceiling, because they can only negotiate uh, what they get paid for the product by the manufacturer that buys the, uh, uh, their product, whether it's uh, whatever agricultural crop it is. Uh, but the laws that in California and New York do not address that supply chain issue. The, the smaller the labor-intensive farmer is, the more they're going to run into that problem that they're only going to negotiate to a certain point. They're not going to get the benefits that uh, labor is uh, used to negotiating with, you know, auto factories and uh, truck companies and so on, where you get pensions and contributions from the employer. Small family farmers don't have that kind of cash flow, and right. so you're going to you're going to come to those laws will not address that. That's why I favor these independent uh, 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 frameworks that has to, have to be created. And if we had a law uh, that had to, would have to include um, um, addressing the, the supply chain prices to create sustainable prices for suppliers, the farmers, uh, in order to sustain uh, our wages at a, at a decent level. So, um, uh, the challenge, I think, is that um, uh, the Congress has to start thinking in new ways of this, uh, because if they can set minimum wages for farm workers, why can't they say set minimum commodity prices for small family farmers? Mm -hmm. You know, why can't they? Why can't if they can compel a, an employer to pay a worker a certain minimum wage, or in the H-2A program, a prevailing wage that's higher than the federal minimum wage? I mean the a federal minimum wage still seven twenty five, and the in the the A word they call it the prevailing wage in the H three program, for North Carolina is fourteen sixteen. Mm. So if they can set these minimum prices for farm workers, why can't they set minimum commodity prices for farmers? Mm. Uh, a sustainable price, create a formula to make that happen. Uh, so that would be one way to do it in a legal framework. 
But um, uh, obviously, the uh, lobbyists of those big uh, corporations are going to be much stronger than the small family farmers. Mm. Yeah, I'm left thinking a little bit about our original conversation around what organizing involves and like what it feels like the field of play for you negotiating these individual frameworks with companies is just smaller and it allows you to kind of build more personal connection and opportunity for agreement. Whereas at in DC for sure, but also at state legislatures, there's just so many parties coming to the table and that's where money can really take over. Yes, absolutely. It's been awesome to spend time with you today, and I just appreciate the storytelling and all the work that you've done. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time we spent. The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duration, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.